all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason. You. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. A contractor ever tell you the price of something and it sounds so high you think, eh, maybe I'll try it myself. Some jobs just aren't that difficult, and yes, you can do it. If you want to find out how to do those things, listen to Fix It 101, podcast everywhere. Kids and Teens on MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Morgan McLeod, Assistant Professor of Pediatrics and Internal Medicine at UMMC. Parents always have lots of questions for their kid's pediatrician, starting from infancy all the way up to the teenage years. And so today, we're going to be talking about some of the most common questions that I get asked as a pediatrician. And of course, we'll love to hear from you, or you can always send an email as well to kids at mpbonline.org. Uh, so happy new year, everybody. This is my uh, first show back for a few weeks because I had to work in the hospital for the past couple of weeks. Um, and so it's hard for me to get over here when I'm in the hospital. So I am glad to be back and I apologize in advance for my voice. Um, it is not 100%. I'm recovering from a cold after working for a couple of weeks in the hospital. It wore me down and I got caught something. So um, I'm feeling okay. I just my voice is just not all there. So I've asked Lacey to help me today, um, and I appreciate her jumping in. Uh, so we're here. Give us a call. Um, we would love to hear from you, and we would love for you to do some of the talking too. <laughs> so uh, you don't have to listen to my scratchy uh, voice, and hopefully I won't be coughing too much in the in the microphone. So I apologize in advance for that. But I do hope everyone had a good holidays and uh, happy New Year. But yeah, we'll go through. Uh, I've sent. Lacey, some of the top questions um, and some topics that we get asked a lot in clinic. And so I figured we could start there. But as always, we would love to hear from you. So give us a call, too. Awesome. Uh, Doc, first of all, that's how you get sick is going uh, to the doctor's office, right? You've been, you've been surrounded by coughs all these times. so Yes, it is. It's really crazy. I feel like it's slowing down a little bit. But there you go. right before Christmas, I mean, it was... Every patient was flu, 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 flu. Mm-hmm. The flu was rampant. Better than COVID, 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 though, right? Well, that's true. We yeah. had a few COVIDs thrown in there, but mm. the flu was just out of control. Anytime the temperature changes, I'm like, here we go with COVID numbers. Yeah. I'm like, here we go. Well, and the flu, I even had to, <clears throat> so the Zofluza is like the newer medicine to mm. treat mm-hmm. uh, to treat the flu. And it works a lot better than Tamiflu does. And it's only one dose. And so it's just a better tolerated medicine all around. Um, but I sent it in and people couldn't find it. Really? Mm-hmm. That's like a friend of mine is on ADHD meds and they were oh, out of yeah. her medicine for months. Oh, they're still out of those medicines. That's crazy to me. Yeah. It's funny that you brought up New Year's resolutions. My personal, you know, there's always the weight loss New Year's, mm-hmm. the go to the gym resolutions. My resolution this year was just to be healthier in general, not yeah. to hit a certain weight, not to meet a certain schedule, but to just live longer. Mm-hmm. 
<laughs> and maybe if if time allows, fit into some smaller pants, but yeah. <laughs> not prioritize the actual weight and the actual body, but to just like you know what? I want to feel better. Well, and I mean, I think that's the, a great perspective to have. I mean, I know I, I talk a lot about, um, you know, being overweight and obesity being related to a lot of our medical problems that we see, like high blood pressure, diabetes, and all of that. And it is true, and we do have to watch that. But if you look at it from your perspective, um, you know, of just being healthier, you know, it along with being healthier, a lot of times comes weight loss. Uh, but if you look at it, just I want to be healthier, that's actually a better perspective to have. Um, I was actually talking to one of my patients about this yesterday. And, you know, it's and we can give you medicines and we can do things to make you lose weight. Um, but if you lose it all at one time, then that's not really sustainable. And so if you look at it more as a long-term goal and a getting healthier aspect and you lose the weight over a year instead of over a month, um, then you're really going to have more benefits in the future. So yeah. uh, one of my sister's friends is a therapist, and uh, one of her big things that she talks about is um, – she helps people with his recovering from eating disorders. And uh, I saw some of the stuff she was posting from her podcast, just talking about like the diet culture and how it's just like everywhere right now because it's the new year and how we really need to change our perspective and not look at it as dieting, but more as lifestyle changes and being healthy. And, you know, so exactly what you said, if you put too much pressure, I feel like if you put too much pressure on yourself with, I've got to lose this amount, I've got to do this. It just becomes overwhelming, and then you get frustrated, and then you stop. So yeah. I love that, and you, just getting healthy in yes. 2024. And putting the scale away. Yeah. <laughs> I once saw a quote that said, if we, if everybody on the planet ate the same food every single day, we'd still look different. And that was a really big perspective for me. Of Very like, true. It's not always about the body weight. Anyway, that's a little personal sidebar to get us started. No, but I think that's a great – I think it's a great thing, and, it, you know, I, I, I feel like we have moved so – we're getting better, but I feel like it is getting a lot better. But I mean, you know, it's still so much pressure on weight. Well, yeah. I, had a, I had a young girl, I, not even a teenager, right? Who, yesterday in clinic who was having issues with that. Mm. So has already started having eating disorder problems. Mm. See, that stinks. Because like, it's just such a, there's so much pressure on our right. kids and just everybody in general. So getting healthy is the way to, to say it now. Yes. Not lose weight. Exactly. Well said, Doc. <laughs> Let's uh, good segue into what you usually talk about, kids and teens. Um, so my, I don't have children, but my two cousins have little babies that I love more than anything in the world, and they're sick all the time, you know, <laughs> because they're kids. Um, and what, you know, when I was in grad school as an older woman, it was, well, are you too sick to come to class? Are you too sick to do your research? But what I always heard and what my cousins always hear about their kids is if you have a fever, stay at home, period, regardless of what your other symptoms are. So I guess what I want to start with in our little Q&A session is what is fever and, and why is that the telltale sign of stay at home? Yeah, okay, that's a great question. So fever is kind of the body's response to some sort of infection usually. It could be a response to other things too because we do see people with um, rheumatologic processes and autoimmune processes that can spike fevers randomly too. But in general, it's usually a body's response to an infection. That could be a virus, that could be a bacteria, that could be fungus, you know, whatever it may be. But typically viruses are what are going to be causing the infections in our young ones. <clears throat> 
And there are a million viruses out there. Uh, we saw a little baby yesterday for a hospital follow-up, and they ran a um, a viral panel on her. And just like in the respiratory viral panel, there's like, I think, 20 at least different ones. And that doesn't even include flu and COVID. Um, and then we also have a GI panel, viral panel that we can do. That's another like 20 different viruses that are just the common ones that we see. Um, so there are so many different viruses out there that can cause these um infections that we typically see in our kids and even in our adults this time of year, you know, with respiratory season, we're seeing all kinds of different viruses. So that being said, the fever can be one of the first signs um, because a lot of times the fever comes before a lot of other things come around. And so that's why we usually say have to be fever free for 24 hours before going back to school or going back to work um, because we know that while that your body has that fever that's usually in the first one to two days of the infection and that's when you're going to be most contagious too and so if you can stay home for at least 24 hours um, once the fever resolves then that usually means your risk of spreading it and being contagious has gone down a lot and so that's why we kind of that's why we like you to stay home when you have a fever because that's usually the first sign that you're you're getting infected. Gotcha. Well, let me ask you this. Probably the worst fever I ever got in my adult life was after my second COVID shot. Mm -hmm. So when these parents are going and getting their little ones vaccinated, is it common for those little ones to maybe have a fever after receiving those shots? For sure. And that's why we don't like to give vaccines too. If um, So like uh, here, I'll give a personal example. I caught this from my daughter who started getting sick last week and we actually were supposed to go to the doctor for her and get her 12 month old vaccines because she turned one two weeks ago. And so um, I ended up delaying it because she I could tell she was starting to get sick. Um, and I was hesitant to give her her vaccines when she was starting to get sick because the vaccines themselves can give you a little bit of a fever. And so I was like, eh, we don't need to play chicken egg. Let's just say, you know, she's getting sick. We'll wait and we'll get her shots this week. And so that's what we did. Um, but, you know, any time that you get any kind of vaccine, flu shot, COVID vaccines, the routine childhood vaccines, um, your body has to create an immune response to it because that's what we're hoping happens. We're hoping that you make antibodies so that you can fight off this virus or this bacteria when you're infected in the future. And so um, anytime you create any kind of immune response, uh, your body has all these different cytokines and things that are released um, that make you have a little bit of a fever. It could make you run a little bit of a fever. And so it is very common. It's totally okay to take Advil or ibuprofen or Tylenol, acetaminophen before you get your vaccines. It doesn't interfere with the way that your body responds to the vaccine. Um, It just kind of helps, you know, keep those side effects at bay. Uh, But, yeah, it is very, very common to get a fever after vaccines. Gotcha. Well, let me ask you one more question, then we'll take a break, Doc. (laughs) Um, When should parents be concerned? I mean, fevers, I think my fever lasted two or three days. But when, what day or how many hours should a parent say, okay, it's probably time to see a professional? Yeah, I would say if it's over two days, um, because usually it's only going to be in the first 12 to 24 hours, honestly. 
Sometimes it can extend into the 48-hour mark, but usually it should be getting better. It shouldn't be lasting um, and having higher fever. So you may like run like a 101 or something after the shot initially that night, um, but by the next day it may only be like 99, which we technically don't consider fever. But if you've had a temp of 99, you know it's enough to make you feel pretty crummy too. So. So even though like 99.5 is not truly a fever, it's still enough to make your body feel a little funky. Um, but again, it should be trending down. So if by day two it's still pretty high, um, I would get in to see a doctor. So um, so like I mentioned before, if you're just tuning in, um, we're just kind of having a free-for-all today uh, talking about some common questions that we get asked as a pediatrician. But we're here to take any calls and questions that you may have. Um, my voice is struggling a little bit, so I apologize for that, and I apologize if I cough into the microphone again. So, Doc, before the break, we were talking about fever, and I know I said we were going to move on, but one of the points you gave me is talking about fever seizures, and I have never heard of that before. Um, so before we move on from the fever, will you please educate me on what in the world a fever seizure is? Yeah, or a febrile seizure. I don't know if maybe you've heard that term before, but febrile fever, That's got, febrile is the adjective, I guess we use to describe people with fever. Um, so, yeah, so a fever seizure, um, they're really scary. Um, if you've never seen anybody have a seizure before, it is a terrifying experience. It feels like it lasts forever. Even as a doctor, the first time I saw one, um, you know, we had a patient having a seizure on the floor and I had to be in charge and what to do. It's still, it's terrifying to see because they're, their body is just out of control because your brain is just rapidly firing. So, so basically what happens with a febrile seizure is it's not how high the fever gets. So a lot of times we'll have people call and say, oh, their temperature is 102. I don't want them to have a seizure. It's not really how high the fever gets. It's how quickly the temperature rises. And most people who have a febrile seizure or a fever seizure are prone to having them before. Um, they have some kind of genetic, something that predisposes them to having them. A lot of times it runs in families. Um, you know, it can be random and nobody in the family has them, but most of the time <coughs> you find out that somebody in the family, either the mom or the cousin or somebody has had these before as well. So, um, But again, it's how quickly the temperature rises. So it's not how high the fever gets necessarily, but how quickly it gets there. And when the other scary thing about a fever seizure is most of the time, you get it, you have the seizure before you realize you have the fever because again it's how quickly the fever rises so like you're a lot of times the parents will put the kid down for a nap and then they start having a seizure and then they wake up and their temps like 102 103 and they went to bed just fine so you know a lot of times they don't even realize they're about to have one because you know they haven't had the fever just yet so um, usually they are uncomplicated and they um, are quick and brief, and they resolve on their own, and you don't have to do any kind of intervention. It's not like a true seizure disorder. Um, and so the reasons we would worry about it would be, you know, if it's their first time ever having a febrile seizure, I would definitely recommend taking them and the, uh, getting evaluated. The other ones that we worry about are the prolonged febrile seizures. Again, they're usually pretty brief, maybe a minute or two minutes. Any seizure that lasts over five minutes, they're going to need to be checked out um, and evaluated. If you have a febrile seizure that is what we consider complex, um, which would mean that you have either prolonged or back-to-back -back seizures, that's, that's a complication too. 
or if the fever is, I mean, if the seizure is only affecting one part of the body. So typically it's going to be those kind of like grand mal seizures. That's the old term that people would say, but that's like for the whole body shaking. Um, but say um, you just shook your right arm and nothing else shook. That's concerning to us because that makes us worried. Is there a certain part of the brain that's affected? <clears throat> Wow. So um, so those are what those mean. Does that mean you're going to always have seizures? No. Usually, um, if you have a febrile seizure, the likelihood that you're going to have a true seizure disorder is like just like the general population. It has no really regard. Now, if you have multiple back-to-back febrile seizures or if you have some of those complex ones that I mentioned, mm, that does slightly increase your risk. But a quick little generalized febrile seizure usually does not increase your risk for having seizures in the future. That is scary. I'm, I'm glad you told me that before I had kids. If I saw that without knowing that, I would freak out. Well, then, before we change the subject, what's the best way to check for a fever? You know, there's oral thermometers, there's rectal thermometers. Is, is one method better than the other? Yeah, so, the you know, the, a lot of the new thermometers out there on the ear and on the forehead um, – are great because they're quick and easy little methods you can do. If you've ever tried to take the temperature of a little one, you know it's not a fun experience. Um, So uh, those forehead thermometers and ear thermometers are really helpful in trying to get a quick evaluation. They're not the most accurate, though. So you can always screen with those ear thermometers and forehead thermometers. If it looks like your child is actually having a fever, then I would recommend taking it um, either orally or rectally. That's going to give you the most accurate. Um, And orally, usually you can start by the time they're at least one. Most of kids are going to be pretty cooperative with keeping it on their tongue long enough. Um, But while they're a little bitty, rectal is going to be the best way to do it. They do make rectal thermometers that actually, like, will have, like, a little stop so you can't push it up too far. Um, But you can use just any kind of regular thermometer as a rectal thermometer. It works the same. Um, But you can just put a little bit of Vaseline or something in there, and you barely have to put it up there a little bottom. Um, But that's going to give you the most accurate. I mean, honestly, if we're being honest in the hospital, when people are in the ICU, that's the way most of the time we check it because it's the most accurate. Axillary or underneath the armpits, another way to do it. It's not the best. Um, But again, it's kind of like one of those forehead or ear thermometers. Like they'll give you a good screening for it and let you kind of know where it is. Um, But if it is showing that that's a little bit high, I still would recommend either doing oral or rectal just to get the best evaluation. Gotcha. Now, while while we're on the subject of fevers, we did have a caller. He couldn't stay on the line, but he still wanted to ask you a question. And his children or child has a body temperature that's a little lower than normal. Now, does that mean that the fever threshold for that child is lower than normal as well? So that's a hard question because... You know, 98.6 is what we have always been told is our regular body temperature. You know, if you ask anybody, 98.6. However, probably is actually a little bit lower for most everybody, to be honest. Um, If you check your temperature for most people, a lot of them are like upper 97, low 98s. And that's actually pretty normal for most people, too. So, um, so I think you could probably get some mixed answers about that, but majority of people are still going to tell you 100.4 is going to be our threshold for a fever. Now, again, <clears throat> like I mentioned earlier, 99.5 is still a high enough temperature to make you feel crummy. So is that a true fever per se from a doctor's standpoint? No, but from a parent's standpoint, you know that's high enough to make your kid feel bad. Um, 
And so you still have to take that into account. So, like, um, you know, if they're complaining about a sore throat and they're running a temp of 99.5 and, you know, that's enough to make your kid feel bad, I would still recommend going and getting them tested for strep throat if they're of age. Um, because, yes, it's not 100.4 in a true fever, but it's still enough to make them feel bad and they have the other complaint and you know your kid best. Um, so I, I say 100.4 is still technically our threshold, um, but we do know some of the 99.5s and things like that can make your kids still feel bad and can still be associated with an infection. So you know your child best, and if you feel like that is a fever for them, I still would recommend getting them checked out. Well said, Doc. Uh, let's change the subject. Gosh, we've been talking about fevers for 30 minutes. Let's <laughs> let's talk about something that's important for kids and teens, but it's also important for Lacey, who is 28 years old, and that is sleep. <laughs> um, so when you first have your baby, some of the earliest comments you're going to get is, well, your sleep schedule is about to be messed up so bad. <laughs> uh, when, as a doctor, do you tell parents you should expect babies to start sleeping through the night? So... That is one of the questions we get all the time. Um, and that's another question parents will ask us, too, is when do I, when can I quit waking them up to feed them at night, too? Uh, because a lot of times, you know, for the first month of life, we still like you to keep them on that schedule every three to four hours. Um, at, I, I usually tell parents for the first month, I don't like you going more than five hours without a feeding at night. <clears throat> Once they hit that one-month mark and once they're, we know that they're growing, you've seen your pediatrician and we have, you know, declared that they are growing okay, um, then it's okay to just let them sleep and do whatever they need to do, you know. And most of the babies are still going to wake up on a pretty regular schedule. Um, by f- three to four months, you notice that uh, most babies are spacing that out a little bit more. <clears throat> they may go more like four to five hours instead of two to three hours at night. And the majority of babies by six months are able to sleep through the night. Does that mean every baby's going to sleep through the night at six months? Absolutely not. Um, <laughs> my oldest is two and still has trouble sometimes. <laughs> um, but for the most part, you know, babies are can, I guess, should be able to sleep through the night if they wanted to. That What I mean by that is don't feel like you have to give your baby a bottle after six months. Most babies by six months of age are taking enough in throughout the day between bottles and baby foods, or if you're doing baby lead weaning, real foods, um, that they have enough calories built up throughout the day and enough fat stores in their body that they can make it all night. Um, So if you wanted to do some quote-unquote sleep training um, for your baby by six months, it should be fine for them to be able to skip a bottle throughout the night. And a lot of babies are sleeping through the night by six months. Something that I'm really curious about, Doc, is how much sleep babies actually need. I'm assuming it's a little bit more than the typical adult recommendation of eight hours, and I'm assuming it's a little bit less than a house cat who sleeps for 14 hours a day. (laughs) So, like, when parents ask, how much sleep does my newborn actually need, what is your advice to them? Yeah. Um, So, newborn babies sleep a lot. A lot, a lot, a lot. Um, Some can even sleep up to 16 to 17 hours a day, honestly. So for that first few weeks, first month, you'll notice that they're sleeping a pretty good bit. 
Um, usually we say try to keep them awake at least 30 minutes, you know, at a time if you can. Um, but yeah, they can sleep up to like 16 hours a day. So that's a pretty good bit. As they get a little bit older and, um, you know, I would say probably still close to 12 to 14 hours a day is what babies are supposed to be getting. Now, is that consecutive? It doesn't have to be. Um, you know, you can ideally, you know, I feel like a lot of parents feel like their kids should be able to sleep from 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. And that's just not realistic for every baby. Um, and so <clears throat> if they don't get a full consecutive, so uh, maybe they get like 10 hours of sleep at night, but you can add up the others throughout the day with naps. So it just to kind of total somewhere between 12 to 14 hours a day should be pretty adequate for little babies and toddlers. As you get older, you know, you probably still need to shoot for around like 10 hours of sleep, ideally. And then as they get to be closer to the teenage years, that's when you go more to like the 8 to 10 hours a day. When they get to their teenage years, that's when you're trying to beg them to go to sleep. Oh, well, yeah. And then they sleep till till 1 or 2 in the afternoon. Well, I'm 28 and I still have that problem. (laughs) Um, So another big thing that I'm sure you get asked about a lot is sleep safety for babies. I mean, you hear, gosh, these horror stories all the time about babies getting strangled in blankets. You know, that's why the um, walkie-talkies that you use right next to the babies are really common. (laughs) The monitors. Yes, what (laughs) walkie-talkies. But a lot of fear and a lot of anxiety with new parents is that sleep safety mm-hmm. and that things can occur while the baby is asleep. So so educate me a little bit on what uh, recommendations you give to new parents about keeping babies safe while they're asleep. So the biggest thing is no co-sleeping and sleeping on their back is the, be- the best thing that we have found. Um, so all babies, we recommend for them to sleep on their backs, uh, which is different. You know, my, even my mom was like, well, you never slept on your back. Well, we have now known, we now know that it is definitely safer for them um, until babies can roll over on their own. We still recommend them always laying on their back. Now, that being said, you know, sometimes if you walk in the hospital and you see little babies sleeping on their tummies, well, they're on monitors. You know, you're not monitoring them all night. So we, when you're at home, we recommend that you have your baby sleeping on their back and nothing in the bed with them. Now, you can do a crib, you can do a bassinet, whatever you want to do, um, but we still just recommend nothing in the bed. No bumpers in the bed, no pillows, no stuffed animals for little bitty babies. Now, as you get older and they're able to roll around and flip around, that's fine to have those kind of things in there Um, but for the newborn little babies on their backs and then we definitely don't recommend co-sleeping you know I have seen personally with my own eyes um, I've only seen it happen twice but two times was enough um, of babies being found in the bed with their parents uh, when I was in the ER as a resident uh, coming in with the baby pulseless and not breathing um, because they had been smothered at some point in the middle of the night and that's the thing you don't realize you're doing it so um so we definitely do not recommend that uh sleeping in the bed um there is like a little study that uh if you look at, um, I think it was Finland, I can't remember, but one of these countries that had the lowest rate of SIDS, and what they would do is they would send home the parents with like a, a box, like nothing, you know, like literally nothing, and that's what their babies would sleep in. And they had the lowest rates of SIDS of anywhere in the world. And um, so nothing in the bed, laying on your back. Um, is the best thing. They recommend at least six months in the room with the parents. I don't think that's the most reasonable. <laughs> I mean, if I'm being honest, most, both of my children were out of our room at three months. Um, 
because it's just babies are better sleepers when they're not in the room with you. So, um, but we have monitors like you mentioned earlier. And so that's very helpful. So you're still watching your child. Um, they may not be it physically in the room with them, but with you have the monitor right by your bed, I think that's fine too. Um, I think we've got a caller. So we will go to Chad. Hey, good morning, Chad. What's going on? Uh, yes, ma'am. I was going to ask you a question. Uh, I used to take Ambien a lot of years, like 10 years ago. And, uh, I, the medications really seem to work for me, but like I, I became like hooked on it. So, what's a good medicine that's close to Ambien but not Ambien? Yeah, so Ambien is a great sleep medicine, um, but like you said, you can you can essentially yeah. get. I wouldn't necessarily say addicted as much as um, your body just kind of becomes dependent on that. Uh, right. You know, they work very similar to the benzodiazepines, so like the Xanax and the Ativan and those class of medicines. So you could see how your body could become dependent on that when you think about all those other medicines. Um, there, there's not really any medicine out there like that besides the benzodiazepines. Now, there are other medicines, though, that we use to help you sleep that, that can be very beneficial. And uh, most of these are, like, actually old depression medicines. Um, so, like, trazodone or remeron, mirtazapine. Those are actually old antidepressant medicines that can be very beneficial for people um, to help them uh, sleep. You know, I, if you read about them, you'll see that they say depression on them, but we don't really use them that much for depression because they make people so sleepy. They're not reasonable medications to use for an everyday thing. Um, so we'll, you'll see us use those a lot. So like I said, Remeron, um, Trazodone, Elevil, that's another one, or Amitriptyline, um, and sometimes even Seroquel too. I don't know if uh, some people are actually on that one as well. So there's lots of other medicines out there, but none in particular that are, I would say, similar to Ambien, um, just because Ambien and Lunesta are kind of in their own class of medicines, but they come with that potential to become um, dependent on them. The other one I would say is just regular old melatonin that you can get over the counter. And then if that doesn't work, there is some like, um, I wouldn't say prescription grade melatonin, but it works on the melatonin receptors. We do have some melatonin agonists that are a prescription that are a little bit stronger that you can get. There's all kinds of new medicines coming out now too for sleep. And honestly, there's some that are so new that I'm not as familiar with them. Um, but they work a little bit differently and seem to be pretty effective. They're just very expensive right now. And it's not very cost effective to be able to get those medicines. So... But hopefully that was helpful. Yeah, absolutely. We have we have lost Chad, but I'm sure that was very helpful. Do you find that these sleep medicines commonly cause like hangovers the next day? Um, not really. Speaking from someone who is an insomniac and can't sleep <laughs> and has had to take uh, sleep medicines in the past. Um, kids, kids have changed that. But for the longest time, I had to take something to help me sleep. I could not stay asleep for anything. And so for people who have true insomnia and have issues with sleeping, no, because most of those people sleep so hard during that little bit of time that they're getting from the sleep. And most people who are on sleep medicine still don't sleep eight hours a night, to be honest. Most of my patients who are on them. Um, and so, you know, during that little bit of sleep that you do get at night, you sleep so well that most people do just fine. Now, I would say that if you're not used to taking them, then yes, you probably will have a little bit of a hangover. And some of them more than others. Most people with those like antidepressants like the Trazodone and the Remeron and those medicines I was talking about really don't because they're not really made to like make you sleep. 
Um, some of those antihistamine ones, like over-the-counter ones that you get, Benadryl or Tylenol PM, um, those have a little bit longer half-life and may linger. And just because of side effects, you may still feel a little groggy the next day. Yeah, my doctor for I, – I have a really bad <laughs> – anxiety problem and so i had some night tears and to help with that my doctor gave me a muscle relaxer Mm -hmm. and man (laughs) best sleep of my life but i have like a like chad was talking about with the ambien there there are some nights where i can't go to sleep without it doesn't Mm -hmm. matter how tired i am i'm just so used to having it Mm -hmm. that i'll take it regardless well and then some of it becomes a mental game too and i can say that from personal experience because like i said i had trouble for the longest time with sleeping i mean starting from my teenage years i started taking tylenol pm to sleep when i was like 16 or 17 years old because i just have always had issues staying asleep um, but then it becomes like a mental game, like, oh, my gosh, I don't have my sleeping medicine. How am I going to be able to sleep tonight? And then you just lay there thinking about, I'm not going to be able to sleep. I'm not going to be able to sleep. And instead of, like, just trying to relax and let your body sleep, you know, so some of it becomes a little bit of a mental game. Um, but a lot of it can be that your body has become dependent on those medicines to help you sleep. So, um, so before the break, we were talking a lot about sleep. Um, and sleep is always a big topic. Um, it's a frustrating thing if you don't get it. Um, so uh, if you have any questions, comments, or maybe some things that you have found to be helpful to help you sleep, I would love to hear from you. Can I ask another sleep question, Doc? Uh-huh. So I don't have children, but I do have two dogs. <laughs> and whenever they're asleep and they're like kind of twitching or moving a little bit, I think, oh, they're having a nightmare. Can the same be assumed of babies if they're moving a little bit in their sleep that maybe they're having problems with nightmares? Um, I guess that's kind of hard to say because we don't really know for sure what's going on in a baby's brain, um, you know, that early. Um, more than anything, it's just kind of little reflexes and things like that. Babies have all kinds of little reflexes and jerks that they do if you watch them. Um, we always, my parents always used to joke uh, when we were little, like, you know, the little babies do the what we call the Moro reflex as a pediatrician, um, but where they kind of throw their arms up in the air. And we used to say, praise in Jesus, um, because that's kind of what it looks like. You know, they, they have so many little reflexes and things because their nervous system is just try is so immature and it's like maturing so quickly like they're learning so many new things and firing all these new creating all these new pathways and all this stuff you know um, and so with that, they just have so many little reflexes. So most of the time, it's just some of those little reflexes and jerks that they're doing. Um, but, you know, you do see, as, especially as they get older, um, kids going through, like, as they're falling into that deep sleep, we all kind of do that little jumping thing. And um, so it is probably part of it, dreaming. Uh, but I think more than anything, it's probably just a lot of their little reflexes. And if you have an older kid or a teenager that's really struggling with nightmares, night terrors, Mm -hmm. what do you as a pediatrician typically recommend to that parent? It's so hard um, because a lot of times there's not much we can do, unfortunately. So I always tell parents, too, to try to, like, keep track. You know, we say all the time, and you probably heard me talk about it in here. If you're ever having a problem, try to write down everything um, and try to keep a diary, is what we call it, um, because it's hard to go back and remember what happened that day. So, you know, if your kid is struggling with night terrors and nightmares, um, I would recommend to start kind of writing down things that you do during the day, like if there's any medicines that you gave them, if there's any specific foods that they ate or anything that you did that day, um, because sometimes you can pinpoint it to certain triggers, um, especially medicines. <clears throat> so some of the allergy medicines, like the Singular, um, 
Singulator is really known for doing that. Um, but some of the other medicines, just in general, you may be able to kind of pinpoint, or there may be certain activities that your child did that day that could could flare it up. But majority of the time, we can't ever find anything. The biggest thing to know is that it's a phase, and a lot of times it will get better. Now, nightmares continue. I mean, gosh, we still have nightmares as adults, you know, um, but you know how to better handle them um, as you get older. So a lot of times, you know, it will get better, and there's not a ton we can do. It's just support them through it. Now, the night terrors, you know, like we talked about seizures being scary. Night terrors are scary, too. I don't know if you've ever seen a kid with a night terror. Um, but the night terrors and the like, um, sleepwalkers and sleep talkers all kind of happen in that earlier stages of sleep, whereas nightmares are in the deeper stages like the REM sleep, so later in the night. Um but in those earlier stages of sleep is usually when the night terrors and then sleepwalking happens. And if you've ever seen it, it's like scary because most of the time the parents are still awake because they haven't gone to bed yet. Uh, because, again, it happens in those early hours of sleep. So if your kid's going down at 7 or 8, it's probably going to happen somewhat like 9, 10 or 11 o'clock at night when the parents are still awake. They look like they're awake and they're looking at you, you know, so they're walking into your room and they're looking at you or you hear them screaming in their bed. And so you go in there and you check on them and they're looking at you and you feel like you can have a conversation with you with them. But they're just glassy eyed over and you can't you can't do anything. Um, So the best thing to do with that, as opposed to a nightmare, which easily wakes them up and you can actually you know, have a conversation with them. So the night terrors and the sleepwalking, the best thing to do is um, to keep them safe because they do go crazy and a lot of times they'll flail their arms and legs. So you want to make sure there's nothing that they can do to hurt themselves. And then just comfort them, you know, just hold them. Um, Don't try, they say don't try to wake them up because that can actually make it worse. Um, so just to try to comfort them and eventually they'll fall back asleep, usually within a minute or two. So, um, it, it is a long couple of minutes when you're watching it happen as a parent, but the best thing you can do is just support them through it and, um, try not to wake them up. That sounds like the exorcist or something. That's, I mean, that's honestly, like it, it, if you've seen it before, it can be really, really scary. I mean, that's terrifying. I'm yeah. never having kids. That's so <laughs> scary. Do um do you as a as a health provider ever get to the point with kids having sleep issues that you feel the need to recommend them to a psychiatrist? Yeah, for sure. Or, um, or like bedwetting a lot of times too. You know, bedwetting can be very normal all the way up till age seven. Um, so just because your kid gets potty trained doesn't mean they're going to sleep through the night and not wet the bed. Um, so bedwetting can be a, a normal thing. But after age seven, that can also be an you know if it becomes an issue. Um, a lot of times you have to look at, like, what else is happening. So we see that a lot of time in kids who are anxious or having underlying mood disorders um, who, you know, like a lot of kids um, – who have been taken out of um, some bad situations in their home life, uh, we'll see that happen too. So, yeah, for sure, sometimes we do because a lot of that can be a result of underlying anxiety. So you would say bedwetting, which is still in the realm of our sleep conversation, that can be linked to a lot of psychological reasons. Um, sometimes. Not always. Now, I mean, some kids just wet the bed, and, you know, that is what it is. And if you talk to <clears throat> When you actually break it down and you talk to their parents, one a lot of the 
parents, one of the parents was usually a bedwetter too. So sometimes it just runs in families and it just happens. But if not, we do see it a lot of times in like our really anxious kids um, have a lot of problems with that too. And so sometimes we'll have to talk to their, you know, their family about what's really going on and maybe getting them set up with a therapist may not be a bad idea. I've heard of situations, Doc, of kids still having issues with bedwetting into their teenage years. Mm-hmm. I mean, what can what can happen within a child to make them still have that issue when they're 13, 14? Most of the time, it's just kids who are really hard sleepers. And it doesn't necessarily mean there's anything physiologically wrong with your child or mentally wrong with your child. A lot of them are just really hard sleepers. And so they don't, <coughs> excuse me, they don't get that sensation and really wake up. So a lot of times our treatments geared towards treating bedwetting is just trying to wake the kid up. (laughs) So, you know, a lot of times the parents will go in and wake the kid up at different intervals throughout the night just to make them go empty their bladder. Um, Or you can get a bed alarm. So you can put like an alarm in their bed. And then what it does is it makes a noise when it senses anything wet, and it makes a loud noise so that hopefully it'll wake the kid up. And so eventually you can train your child to start waking up to that sensation. Um, But usually, I mean, like I said, most of the time you'll find that one of the parents was actually a bedwetter for a long time, um, or they're just a super hard sleeper. Now, that's the other thing, too, is like if they're a snorer and really hard sleeper, you want to make sure they're not having any sleep apnea, too. Um, uh, so you want to maybe talk to your doctor about that and just make sure they don't need to be screened for that with a sleep study or anything like that. <coughs> but majority of the time, it's just because they're really hard sleepers and they don't wake up. <laughs> gotcha. Is bedwetting ever tied to some kind of like bladder issue or kind of physical problem? Not usually because if it is, um, you know, a lot of times we will always check a urine test and just make sure they don't have any kind of infection hiding in there. Um, they don't have any glucose or anything like that in there because, you know, with diabetes, one of the things that you do is you urinate more frequently uh, because your sugar is so high. And so sometimes we'll see that. But usually if it's an infection or if it's diabetes, they're having accidents during the day, too. It's not just confined to nighttime. Gotcha. Doc, let's let's spend our last few minutes here talking about a popular topic of car seats. We haven't talked about it in a while. Um, you, you, you hear parents talking a lot about turning the car seat around. Um, what's a good time to do that? Should you do that? Should you not? Should you stop doing that at a certain point? Yeah. So we recommend now rear-facing car seats, so in the back seat, rear-facing until age two. And a lot of times people are like, well, that's just crazy. They're too long. They're too big. And most of the rear-facing car seats now go up to, like, at least 40 pounds, which is kind of crazy. Um, so, which is needed, though. I mean, like, my my 2-year-old's 30 pounds, so you need a car seat that's pretty substantial. Um, and a lot of them, like, my little girls can actually um extend the bottom part can extend so it gives her a little bit more leg room uh so they're pretty honestly pretty comfortable and if your kid doesn't know any different then they don't even really realize they're rear facing there's so many different things that you can put in the car now to keep them occupied however you know i do know there are certain situations that kids like hate rear facing um but for the most part you usually can keep them pretty occupied and everything like that so yeah so up until age two and then at age two we recommend that you can turn them around um 
And now the reason we say, you you know, we recommend for them to turn around is just because of if you were to be in an accident and impact, they're a little, they don't have very good neck control until at least, you know, they get older. Um, and so if you, depending on which way you get hit, if, you know, if you're hit from behind and they're forward facing, they're a lot less, more likely to kind of flip their neck over. Same thing if they're hit from the side, as opposed to rear facing, you know, no matter which way you hit, if you hit them from behind, they're not going to do their neck. If you hit them from forward facing, their neck. It's not going to go, you know, their head's not going to go forward. Well, it's kind of hard to see, you know, think about it in your head. But if you if you think about it, it makes sense. Um, but essentially, we're protecting them because of their neck control, which we know by two, they usually have better of that. And that's why we recommend you can turn them around then. Um, and then we, we recommend staying in a car seat for as long as possible. Um, but I know that sometimes that can get, get um you know, a little frustrating for the child and like you're ready to switch them to a booster seat. So um, when they do finally outgrow their car seat based off of their weight and their height, you move them to a booster seat. What we recommend doing for a booster seat is we want them to be able to sit upright in the booster seat so that the seatbelt hits like it would hit me and you as an adult. Um, Because as the kid's sitting there, you know, if you put them just directly in a car seat, the seatbelt's not going to fit them right. And then if you are involved in an accident, you're probably going to have more damage from the seatbelt hitting them inappropriately than actually keeping them in the car. So that's why we want you to go from a car seat to a booster seat so that the seatbelt can actually hit them appropriately. Um, And, like, you want it to fit like it would fit me and you as an adult. Gotcha. So when is the appropriate time that a child can ride in the front seat? Mm. So this is an answer that a lot of kids don't like to hear, but it's recommended age is under 13. They should be riding in the back. So not until you become a teenager are you really supposed to be able to ride in the front. Um, and so whenever I mention that at a checkup, I'm like, you know, you really need to be still sitting in the back seat. Uh, that is not something a 10-year-old likes to hear um, because most 10-year-olds, you know, 11-year-olds, they're starting, they're out of their booster seat and they're ready to move to the front seat and they're not ready just yet. So, I mean, if you're going a little bit of a ways, it's probably fine for your younger kids. But, you know, if you're going to substantial difference, we really recommend not until age 13 to be sitting in the front seat. I remember my first time in the front seat was a very big deal. That yeah, was a very, very big moment of my childhood. Uh, one last question before I lose you, Doc. What types <laughs> of car seats do babies and toddlers need? Um, so you want to make sure that they have <clears throat> the car seat has the um five-point restraints, um, and they're harnessed in. The best way to do it is uh, to, you know, the, a lot of the newer car seats are really nice in that they have, like, the the latch, such, la, <clears throat> excuse me, but the cars, excuse me, a lot of the newer cars and the car seats have, like, the latch system, so you actually can just do it without having to use a seat belt anymore. Um, and so that can make it really nice for the parents when you're taking it in and out of the cars, especially if you're having to switch cars out, uh, like put car seats in and out of cars a lot. Um, so like whenever we have to get in with the grandparents and that kind of thing, it just makes it a lot easier. So you may want to look for a system, um, a car seat that has one of those so you don't actually have to use the seat belt. It just makes it nicer, um, makes it easier too. Um but, yeah, that's really about it. I mean, the biggest thing is just you want to make sure that they have the full five-point five harness on there. Um, when they're a little bitty, we usually have some kind of little, not bumpers, but they have some little pads in there to kind of keep them a little bit more cushioned that you can take out, usually by six to eight weeks of life. So, um, But that's really about it. 
So thanks, Lacey, for helping out. I didn't have to talk as much, and uh, everybody didn't have to listen to the screeching of my voice. So um, I appreciate y'all sticking with me through it, and thanks, Lacey, for asking all the questions. They were some good questions. We had fun, didn't we? We did. We did. It was a good day. All right. Well, Happy New Year again to everybody, and I hope everybody has a healthy and safe um, 2024. This has been Southern Remedy Kids and Teens. It's a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and Think Radio, and it's funded in part by a grant from the University of Mississippi Medical Center and generous support from listeners like you. I'm Dr. Morgan McLeod. Join us next Thursday at 11 for Southern Remedy Kids and Teens. Stay tuned for NPR's Here and Now coming up next on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.